why the detail of the scriptural text do not supply for us all that we might want to know about what happened there, my imagination can fill in some of the color. It was a very grisly task, but one which the soldiers who had come to that place knew all too well. In my imagination, I picture one of the soldiers, I'll call him Festus, shoving the prisoner down to his knees as the howls and the taunts of the bystanders grew all the louder. His brother-in-arms, we'll call him Hector, then joined him in kicking the condemned man till he splayed out across the wooden frame. Grunting as he knelt down to gnash to lash the limbs of the prisoner to the wooden cross, Claudio then pinned the man's hand down with his own hands to keep it in place, and now it was Julius's turn. With practiced eye, the big man set the tip of the spike on the soft place between the bones of the wrist and the hand. And then he brought his mallet crashing down. First the right arm, then the left, then the feet of the condemned man were pinioned like an insect on display. Pound, 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 pound. Although none of them confessed this fact until much later, it seemed, each of the soldiers had been strangely affected by the third prisoner. Festus and Hector thought it strange that the prisoner had not cursed them when their boots slammed into his ribs. Although Claudio never never looked into the eyes of a prisoner when tying him down. His eyes in this instance had momentarily played across the face of the Galilean, and he was startled to see there something he had never encountered before. He did not see the terror or the rage that was native to the condemned, but rather a look he would later described with a word that was distasteful to all Roman soldiers. And the look in his eyes and the word that described it was surrender. Though not of the kind that the victims and the losers typically express. Even Julius had been stunned that the prisoner had not screamed as the spikes had plunged through his flesh, and each of them silently sensed that there was something, something different about this one. By the end of the day, the centurion, who was the leader of the execution squad, would exclaim, surely he was a righteous man, or in one other translation, surely he was the Son of God. But for now, of this much, all four of the soldiers were absolutely sure. This Nazarene might be a little bit different from ordinary people, but he would definitely die like all the rest. 
It could take as much as a day or more for someone to die on a cross. Most aspired by asphyxiation as the strain on their muscles caused their lungs to actually collapse. A strong man could last for a while by pressing himself up against the nails in the feet to give a little bit of relief against the weight of his own body dragging him downward toward death. But it was very clear that as they looked at the criminals hanging there, that they would not last long. The two thieves on the outside certainly didn't look too burly, though the one in the middle had the, the chest, the arms, the shoulders of a carpenter. But he was already so weak. He was so weak from the torture that the soldiers had given him. His body shredded by the lash of the whip, his head and face scarred by the scourging, blood running down from the piercing of the thorns in the crown of mockery they'd placed upon his head. He had not even been strong enough to carry his own cross up that hill. No, none of these men, maybe especially not that one, was going to be long for this world. Which is why I imagine Claudio saying, let's get the game started. By the game, he meant, of course, the dividing of the spoils. From time immemorial, as you well know, victors have considered it their proper right to take the belongings of the vanquished. We do it in politics. We do it on the playground. We continue to do it to this day. John's Gospel suggests that it took hardly any time at all for the four soldiers to divide up most of the prisoner's stuff. The only question was, who would get the Galilean's robe? You see, it was an unusually fine garment. We're told in the text, it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. The way, by the way, by the way that, the, that the garment, the, the robe of the high priest himself in the temple's garment was woven. So was, strangely, this not a priest, this scourged, condemned man's robe was. So, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And so there the soldiers sat, gambling over the garments of God. Gambling at the foot of God. There are two things about these gamblers, as I will call them, that strike me. And the first, and forgive me for being blunt here, is their almost suicidal stupidity. I'm talking about their behavior there in light of who the middle prisoner had claimed to be. 
There's an old song by the folk writer Jim Croce. Some of you will know it. It counsels even the toughest scoundrel against trifling with a particularly formidable man. And to paraphrase the chorus, it goes like this. You don't tug Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask off that old long lone ranger. And you don't mess around with him. Everything that these soldiers were doing here, from their nailing of him to that cross, to their stealing of his clothes, to their mocking of his apparent powerlessness, as they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself everything that they did. All of this behavior ranks as the most dangerous gamble of all time. It was a gamble that Jesus wasn't really who he said he was. That there would be no accountability whatsoever for their trifling with him. And to be ruthlessly honest, I think that some of us bet on the same thing. We're betting that we don't have to take all that seriously, all that stuff he said about our being judged one day by the harsh words, every word that has proceeded from our mouths. We don't feel like we have to take seriously what he said about the danger of those who fail to act on behalf of the poor and the outcast. We're betting that we don't have to worry too deeply about doing good to our enemies or letting God be the Lord of our finances or our sex life or our temper. Many people today are like those soldiers. We're just living a sort of practical agnosticism predicated on the bet that Jesus might have been a pretty savvy teacher and a pretty good role model for kids, and quite different from those other guys that were being crucified there, but he wasn't really God in the fullest sense, in the kind of sense that leads to a spirit of humility and accountability. Because if he was God... We wouldn't mess with his things, would we? We, we would give him all that we had. <laughs> and, and we would surrender to him all that we are, recognizing him as the source. Not just the occasional plug-in, plug-out resource, but the source of everything. We would fall on our knees before him, I think. In humble adoration, we'd be staggered by the absolute wonder of the fact that when it was we who deserved punishment for blasphemy against God and sedition against the one eternal kingdom in this universe, when it was we who belonged on that cross, it was he who chose to lay himself down there. In our stead. I tell you, it is stupid 
to gamble before God. But it's, it's not just the stunning stupidity of the gamblers that is so convicting to me, personally. It, it is also their, their staggering short-sightedness. Less than 10 feet away from them. Think about this. 10 feet away from them was hanging the being who had the power to clothe them in righteousness itself. To, to robe them in all that they would need to stand one day before the holy God. But all they cared about was who would get the coat of cotton. The one who could cover them with forgiveness for all of their failings and wrap around them the belt of his truth, the one who could shoe them with the absolute assurance of eternal life and clothe them with priceless character, this one would have freely given them. And anyone who asked of him what they most desperately needed in life. But instead, they were obsessed with snatching from one another mere threads that moths and thieves would eventually steal anyway. How many, how many of us do our own version of this? How many of us think that the object of life's game, whether we say it with our lips, how many of us actually live in such a way that shows we believe the object of life's game is to try to win things, which when compared to what God freely offers us are shown to be mere rags. Some of you will remember perhaps my telling of a story that makes this point so well that I think it bears repeating. And the story is of a wealthy man who together with his devoted son shared a tremendous passion for collecting art. Priceless works of art by the likes of Monet and Gauguin, Picasso and Van Gogh and adorned the walls of this particular family's estate. And as the father and the son traveled the art world together, the older man just beamed with pride as he had a chance to watch his son's business mind and artful eye uh, growing sharper and sharper every single day. He would make such a marvelous heir to his father's fortune and to his father's and family's capacities, the dad felt. As winter approached, however, the young man left his country to serve in a great war. And in time, his father received the catastrophic news that his one and only son, his only child, had been killed. The old man fell into a spiraling kind of despair. All of the masterpieces on his walls suddenly meant very little to him. They only served to remind him that his son had suffered and died and was gone forever. And months passed by and months more. And the distraught man buried himself in solitude and grief. 
One morning, he was awoken. He was called to the door by one of his servants, and there he was greeted by a young man in a military uniform with a large package in his hands. I was a friend of your son Joshua, the man said. And at the time Joshua's hit, and the time he was killed, he was protecting me with his own body. I will never forget him. I will never forget your son. And this is why I painted this, and I want you to have it. The elder man took the package and began to pull away the paper, and as he did so, he saw there revealed a portrait, a portrait of the face of that precious son. It was not, of course, the kind of painting that anybody would consider good enough to hang in some museum someplace, but it featured the son's face in striking detail. And overcome with incredible emotion, the man profusely thanked the soldier and promised he was going to hang this painting in the place of honor in his great hall, which he did. The following springtime, the old man became ill and he passed away. And the art world almost instantaneously began to twitter with anticipation that with the collector's passing and his only heir dead, those paintings would all be sold at auction and people from every corner of the globe and museums and private collectors everywhere made plans to come to that auction. And the day arrived that an elite crowd of art collectors all arrived at the estate to bid on what were undoubtedly some of the world's most spectacular paintings. And the auction began with a painting that was not on anyone's museum list. You can guess what that painting was. It was the portrait of the wealthy man's son. Who will open the bidding with a hundred dollars? The auctioneer cried. But the room just fell awkwardly silent. Painful moments passed, awkward moments passed by until someone from the back of the room shouted out, who cares about that painting? It's just a picture of his son. Forget about it. Move on to the masterworks. And a chorus of other voices rose up in agreement. No, we have to sell this one first, said the auctioneer. Finally, an older gentleman who had worked as a caretaker on the family property meekly spoke up. Will you take $10 for the painting, he asked. That's all I have. But I knew the boy, and I loved him, and I'd like to have him. I have $10, cried the auctioneer. Who'll go higher? Crickets. Crickets in the room. Going once, going twice, gone, said he. And murmurs of relief filled the room, and someone exclaimed, Now can we get on with the bidding? But the auctioneer calmly announced that the sale was over. 
and cries of protest rose up. What do you mean? It's over. What about all these paintings? There are millions of dollars worth of art here. What's going on? And the auctioneer calmly replied, it's very simple. According to the will of the Father, whoever takes the Son inherits it all. Beloved, it still works that way. Like the soldiers at the foot of the cross, or like the people in that auction room, many, many today continue to gamble their lives in pursuit of who knows what. Countless people spend their time and their energy trying to win a place on this world's A-list, failing to understand, either because of stupidity or short-sightedness, that they were only earning themselves a place on the blacklist. But the Son of God came in love to usher in a much better way. Jesus gave his life on this day, on a cross like that, in the ultimate battle between good and evil. He gave himself away so that a supreme inheritance could become available to those wise and humble enough to seek it. And I'm talking about complete forgiveness. Take that in. Complete pardon for all of our sins. I'm talking about the power to change our character for the good. I'm talking about a magnificent purpose for living and, and, and a capacity for renewed kind of relationships. I'm talking about victory over death itself and eternal life thrown in. This is the inheritance. These are the treasures that God means for you to have and me to have and others of this world to know and to have. And so as we come tonight to this table, remember this cross to which it steadfastly points. Remember this Jesus who laid down his life out of love for you, for you. He knows you by name as he laid down his life for me and humbly receive Christ as your Savior and your Lord, whether once again or for the very first time, do this because according to the will of the Father, whoever takes the Son inherits it all. This is the word of our God. Thanks be to his name. Amen.